Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Out of the Cave podcast. This podcast, you, you could say it's about a lot of things, but really the real purpose of this podcast is a way for me to have conversations with people I find interesting and want to speak with. I've always been interested in what it means to be a man, personality, relationships, morality, the existence of God, and a bunch of other topics in that same vein. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations and take something away like I will. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. Dr. Roper, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you a few questions. And the first is, uh, I've heard you lecture many times, and you're a fantastic uh, orator. So I wanted to ask you okay. first, how did you discover your passion for teaching and advising people? <laughs> uh, oh, the, the fact is, um, I, you know, uh, remember again, I was a science guy who switched to English my junior year. So I really went off to graduate school with no intention of, of teaching. I just wanted to keep learning a bit more of this literature stuff. But I, I, had a, I had a sister who'd been an education major and was a teacher for a few years before she you know, got married and started having kids. I have a brother who's a band director. Actually, it's um, the same high school that, that Dr. Hibbs went to as high school, DeMatha High School outside of Washington, D.C. Um, and, uh, and I thought, no, I don't know. I don't want to be a teacher. I don't want to be stuck in high school. I didn't like high school when I was there. So I thought nothing of teaching. And um, at the University of Virginia, when you got admitted from the MA program to the PhD program, they made you teach, uh, started teaching composition, you know, your basic composition classes at, at a big state school. Um, and uh, I thought, oh, I'll do this if that's what I need to do to, you know, to finish off the PhD. Um, and I found I liked it. I found I liked being in front of the students. I liked helping them. I liked explaining things to them and, and bringing them along. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I, I look back now. So I've never taken an, an education course my whole life. Um, I, I learned what I did in kind of the old fashioned apprenticeship method. You know, I sort of thought, okay, well, who were the good teachers who taught me? What did they do? What are some of the things? And I just kind of modeled myself on them. And, and I always say that, um, I would love to go back to that first, you know, Comp 101 class at the University of Virginia in the fall of, must have been 1987. And I would like to like, you know, all apologize to them and give them a big hug and say, I'm really sorry because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and, and actually at the end of that semester, um, you know, I sat down and I, I just, you know, used ideas other graduate students were using and kind of used the textbooks. We had the freedom to kind of choose even the textbook we wanted to use. Um, and at the end, I thought, this is not getting through to these students, you know, and I threw everything out and I just started all over again saying, they just need to be interested in language and what it can do. And I, and I remember I started with the Declaration of Independence and, and, um, and the Gettysburg Address. And I started and I said, okay, what are these guys doing? Like, how are they using words? And uh, I just, yeah, I just sort of threw everything out. And that was really based on the advice of uh, my uh, mentor who himself wasn't a great classroom teacher, but a really good kind of uh, advisor and thinker about these things. And he said, 70% of what you teach is yourself. And I, you know, being a UDer and thinking, you know, the text is paramount, you know, I kind of recoiled from that. I said, no, that's just sort of, you know, that's, that's self-indulgent and that's, you know, I should be teaching the, the material, not myself. And he said, no, 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 that's not what I mean. He said, you know, what you're teaching is, yourself you're teaching your attitude towards the material your passion for the material the way you approach the material um that's what you know and that's 70 percent of what they're going to take away um and and i tell i tell you know young teachers that all the time now myself because i say um it's not about the cult of personality but it is about 
that sense of you know showing them your your engagement with the material, your your fascination with it, the questions you have to ask about it, and and really it helped me relax. And I walked into that second semester with that idea of like, the heck with it. I'm, I'm not going to you know. And um, and I find that that young teachers um, they're often so um, they're they're so committed to the material that they're a little uptight. And, and I, I try to say, like, it's okay to be yourself. You know, you're, you're a funny guy. Be funny. You know, if you're a very serious guy, go ahead and be serious and show them. You know, uh, I, I, one of my son's teachers, I remember he, he's at the Great Heart School. I don't want to identify him. But, but um, he, I remember seeing him, you know, the, his first semester of the parent night. And I thought, wow, he's just wound too tight right now. Um, and, and it was funny that, that the students were like, oh, I don't really think him. he's not very interesting. And by about November, all of a sudden I heard, started hearing a completely different story. Like, oh, we love him. He's so dry. He's so witty. And I thought, okay, good. It's happened for him. He's, he's begun to relax. He's begun to be himself. He's begun to let himself show himself in front of the students. Um, and, and I was so proud of him. I was so happy for him. And now the students just fall all over themselves loving him because he allowed himself Right to show that seventy percent of who he is, and um, and I, I think if you if you, I, I would say that's one thing I say, but I don't, I've only had listen, it's I've only had like two original ideas in my entire life. That one's not one of them because I, I stole that from from that mentor of mine. But the but the one original idea I have had about about teaching is this: is I always say, if you can remember a time back to when you didn't know this material, you can teach it to someone. Right? The first act of a teacher is an act of memory and an act of imagination. Because whenever you're teaching anything, obviously you know way more than the students. Right? But you have to be able to remember that time when you didn't know anything about Beowulf. Uh, you didn't know the f and when Dante was impenetrable to you. And believe I, I can remember that like yesterday. I, remember, I didn't know. I couldn't make heads or tails of Dante the first time through. But, but for me, it was, uh, for instance, for me, it was teaching paragraphs. I, 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 I grew up in a house that was full of readers, and, and my, my, my mom took us to the library really often. My mom never had a college education, but she was a huge reader. So I, I cannot remember a time when I didn't know what a paragraph was. And I remember in you know, fifth and sixth grade, there being these assignments, you know, construct a paragraph, and it has to have a... It has to have a topic sentence and four or something. And I, I remember even back then going, what? I, I, how can you not know what a paragraph is, right? I've been reading paragraph. And, and so for me, it was very, very difficult. And, and I had to actually figure out how to teach paragraphs. And I had to figure out like, what, was, what do students not know when they don't know what a paragraph is? Um, and, and it was really, because I just, I was like tearing out my hair, like, why can't they write a paragraph? And instead of just, you know, beating them up, saying, stop it, stop it, write a paragraph, I had to figure that out. And it was really fascinating. Uh, but I now really, really deeply believe that, that the first act of teaching is an act of memory. You have to remember yourself back to that ignorance. And, and, and in a sense, imagine what it's like to be in that state. Because then it's easy, right? Then you just go, okay, oh, how did I get from there? To here, right? How did I get to? I, I do this, in, you know, with soccer, for instance, which is a very fluid uh, sport. When I'm coaching soccer, it, I have to remember, like, what does it feel like to not know 
where to move. Like I look at a player and I'm like, how could you not see that? The whole, the whole game was developing in that direction. Like there's no other way that ball could have gone except there, right? You should have been able to be there by then. And I realized, oh no, he doesn't know that. He's never seen, he hasn't seen that pattern 5,000 times the way I've seen that pattern, right? And so he's not able to think four steps ahead. Um, and, so I, and so I have to go, oh yeah, I have to teach them. I have to teach them how to see that coming. Right. And, and you feel, and then you realize, oh, it's not his fault. It's my fault. I'm the idiot. I couldn't realize that he hadn't seen that. And so it's the same thing in literature. Like, how, how do you imagine a time back when, you know, I am some trochees? Like, who, I, I, now I can remember that. Like, I, they keep teaching me that over and over again in public school. Like, who cares? But nobody ever taught me why you should care. Right. Until I got to, the, to a certain level, like, Oh, that's why it mattered. That's so cool. Like, yeah, like he, he used that whole thing to emphasize that word and say, wow, right? So, um, and that's what I get into. That's what I, you know, when I get up and I'm in the shower in the morning, I'm, I'm like trying to go like, okay, what do they not know? What do I have to, where do I have to go today? Like, and, and what is it? Okay, we learned this, but they still don't know this. And I'm going to have to, and like, or, or I'm, be, I'm going, okay, idiot, on Tuesday, you went, walked right over them, and now you realize you were three steps ahead of them. Back up, let's go back, and let's say, you know, what's a story like? You know, why, why does a story have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end? And what does that even mean? Uh, so that's the fun, and that's the thrill. And, and the cool thing is, like, taking that student's that extra step, and then that next step, and then the next step. And then all of a sudden, they realize they've gone 15 steps from that state of ignorance, and now they can do so much more and they know so much more and they can build on so much more. So that, that was a long answer to a very short question. So sorry about that. <laughs> no, that was great. That was great. So could you explain for those who don't know what a uh, pedagogy is and is there a particular, like you were just talking about a particular pedagogy you use when you do teach? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, like uh, a pedagogy is it just, um, it's just a system of, of teaching sort of an approach to teaching um, a kind of whole, um, I guess it would involve everything from sort of your attitude to your philosophical uh, underpinnings to, um, you know, all the way to kind of techniques and methods. I, I think, unfortunately, people often think of pedagogy just in terms of kind of technical means, right? And, and we're a very, we're Americans, we're a very pragmatic society. We're a very sort of technically oriented society, right? And so uh, I think often people just think of pedagogy in terms of Okay, what are the sort of technical means I can I can use to get these students here, from here to here? Um, when I do hear educational people talk, they talk about uh, what's the scaffolding. I, I, I heard I heard people use that a million times. Like, what what do you what is that term? I've never heard that term before. And they just mean like you know the the ladder. What's the step by step by step method? And that's great. And you have to have that, like we were just saying. Um, but I think you know pedagogy should also mean you know, what's the, what's the kind of fundamental philosophical ideas that underwrite everything else you do? Um, and, and now here's the funny thing. Like, if you ask me, you know, today to say, what is my pedagogy? Um, I, I would have to say, I don't know, you know, um, uh, other than what I already described to you. Uh, but, but I will say this, um, what I've sort of learned in more recent years through sort of controversies with my sons, uh, high school, um, and some of the crazy ideas they had. Um, 
I mean, here's, here's, here's another phrase I've been using recently. Um, if you get the anthropology right, the pedagogy will be, will be right. It will be good. If you don't get the anthropology right, I don't care what techniques you use, the teaching will go off the rails. So what do I mean by the anthropology? Um, right, the fundamental attitude you have about what a human is. Uh, in, you know, anthropology in that sense, the philosophy of the human. And if you understand humans as rational and free, as capable of understanding the truth, as, as designed to grasp the true, the good, and the beautiful, right? It's fundamentally designed to grasp the true, the good, and the beautiful. Um, but also, of course, affected by original sin. So in some ways, um, broken. Uh, broken in our wills, especially. I mean, that's the whole, that's whole division between Luther and, say, Aquinas, right? Is, is the intellect broken as well? Or, or is, is the will, is it just the will? Or is the will and, and the intellect fundamentally broken? In, in important ways. Um, sure, we, we're subject to original sin, but we are built, designed, able to, right, understand and grasp the true, the good, and the beautiful. Um, and, and I find that, um, you know, I would say in my public school, um, there was a kind of technical sense of what education was about, but there wasn't that deeper, richer sense. And it was when I came to UD and began to get liberally educated I began to discover these whole riches that um, that it's learning is not just about uh, right as Newman would say gaining a power, but, new, but learning you know knowledge is a good as well as a power, and that we are fundamentally designed for that, so that when we learn, we are fulfilling a fundamental part of our nature. Just to learn any truth is to fulfill a fundamental part of our nature. Um, so if, I I would say that. You know, those are the fundamentals of my pedagogy, is that we are, we are designed for truth, for, for goodness and for beauty, and we can achieve that. Now, in, in, can we achieve all of God's truth? Of course not. Uh, but, but we are fundamental in our nature designed for truth. And so a pedagogy is just about leading students to see the truth, right? And, and, and we don't have to get any fanciness about that. Truth is just the reality of things. Right? When, when my philosophy professor, Fritz Wilhelmsen, uh, UD said, uh, truth is just the conformity of the mind to reality. I was like, well, that's, wow, that's, how about that? That's simple. And, and, and I, you know, I, I thought, oh, somebody's going to tell me truth and it's going to be this big, huge, profound thing, what truth is. You know? And he always thought that truth was this thing that guys sitting up on a mountain, like they have achieved truth. And, and, and Fritz Wilhelm was just, no, it's just the conformity of the mind to reality. And we're like, yeah, there you go. And, 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 and we are built to do that. How about that? Um, and that's a great, that's, it's a, both a great challenge and, and charge to the, to the teacher to lead students in that way. But it also gives you a certain way of relaxing, saying, oh, well, they're designed for this. This is how they're already pointed. I just have to help them along the way. Yes, yeah. So we're both the products of a public school, high school education. And for me, uh, before coming to the University of Dallas, which is what we keep uh, talking about here, um, I didn't really understand that idea. So, and you also went to UD for your undergraduate. So what was that experience like for you? And like, how did you start to, you know, realize the truth and understand it in that way? Well, see, I, um, you know, I think like, like, uh, 
plenty of uh, people, especially guys, I think in a public school kind of a setting, like, uh, you know, the bright kids gravitated towards science. Um, you know, all, all the smart kids and especially the smart guys um, in, in a suburban Texas high school in um, like the late 70s, uh, if you were a smart guy, you, you, you wanted to excel in the math and science classes because that's where there were answers. That's where there was truth. Right. Um, English classes. Okay. Forget it. You know, it was all subjective nonsense. And, and, you know, one day uh, this answer would be right. And the next answer next day that, you know, and, and everybody's answer was equally right. Um, and I didn't want to have anything to do with that. And I, I think, I think actually that was a, an intelligent reaction. <laughs> um, and it, it really, um, so I was all about science and math. I wanted to go to a, a, a you know, a science heavy school rice. Uh, and excel in those things the way everybody else did. And, and um, I really loved biology. I wanted to find a cure for cancer, become famous and, and uh, important in the world, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, but I mean, I, I, I genuinely had a, had a desire to, to learn the truth of things. I was in love and I still am in love with the DNA molecule, the kind of elegance. I, I, I don't, you know, I would never have put it in those terms at the time, but I had a, I had a, you know, a sort of platonic reaction to the beauty uh, of, of, of God's creation in nature, how elegantly designed it all was. Um, and that's what drew me on to, to the truth and the fascination of how it all worked. Um, but I, I would never have said that at the time, right? I would have said, I'm, I'm interested because it, because that's where you find, you know, that's where you can find truth and things works and X equals three and not X equals how I feel about three today or, or my Freudian understanding of three, right? Which is what I would have gotten in my English classes. Um, so I, then I came, uh, I, and I was accepted to Rice, but I knew my parents couldn't afford it at the time. Right? You know, my, my parents were very middle class. Um, so I was kind of disappointed, but then um, I, I, uh, my mom found uh, an article in the diocesan paper saying, you know, hey, you know, I know this is not really the kind of school you're looking at, but they have this scholarship. Um, you might, you know, might look into it. So uh, I was living in a suburb of Dallas, and I, I whipped off this essay and put together my my transcript and I drove it up the highway to UD in time that day for it to be due um, and got a call for an interview. And, and uh, you know, you'll, you'll laugh at this, Vincent, but I remember in the interview um, there was uh, Sybil Novinsky, right? The, 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 the great woman of UD who'd done everything. Um, and it was a, this, this graduate student um, was also on the panel. And I remember um, I first just sort of talked, talked down, uh, a liberal arts school because I wanted to go to med school and there was uh, Warren Pulich, the biology professor there kind of like swallowed his tongue you know me insulting this this school because of their it had to tell me that the great med school acceptance rate I was like oh uh, I guess I uh, sort of stuck my foot in that one didn't I you know and and at that point I kind of went well this interview's over I'm never going to get anything out of this one and the very next thing is the graduate student uh, said well you keep talking about science but don't you think that the philosophic way to truth is every bit as important as the scientific way to truth? And I, I kid you not, but I looked at her like she had just sprouted three heads. You're like, like I have, and I literally, I just said, I have no idea what the philosophic way to truth is. And I have, I have no idea what that would even mean. But, uh, and then I kind of stumbled into saying, but you know, the scientific method works for me. And I tried to sort of walk my way through the scientific method. I'm trying to cover myself for, for what a, a stupid fool I was, right? 
And, and the only thing I can tell you, because I did end up getting the scholarship, is that uh, either UD was so desperate for students that year, or, you know, Sybil Novinsky said, all right, this one has a little bit of a brain, but he's such an idiot, we need to get him here and pound some sense into him. Uh, because, uh, you know, uh, I got the scholarship, and I thought, well, I'll give it a try. You know, uh, my sister had gotten accepted, but hadn't had any financial aid. Uh, it's a shame, she would have been great at UD. Um, and so I said, yeah, I'll give it a try. You know, if I don't like it, I can, I'll transfer somewhere else. Um, and then I got here and, and uh, like we were saying a, a little, little bit before we got started, I mean, people love the kinds of books that I'd never had a chance to read in high school, but I kind of knew that's what intelligent people read. They liked the questions. They liked the talk. I grew up in a family of seven. We were all kind of arguers and debaters and, and we loved, you know, we'd sit around the, the table at dinner time. My parents actually um, had kind of different political orientations, but they enjoyed us engaging with that. And, and, and so suddenly I was back with, you know, kind of in a, a big family where everybody liked doing what I liked doing, um, talking about ideas, trying out things, you know, talking about art and music. And, um, you know, we were very middle class, but my parents, you know, encouraged us in all of those ways. Uh, so I just fell in love with the place, you know, and I thought, I thought, this is it for me. This is what it is. And I can do my science stuff and have some of this other stuff. And then I had uh, Dr. John Alvis uh, of, of blessed late memory um, in my literature one class. And he showed me, you know, from day one that the study of literature had a kind of intellectual solidity, had a reality that it pointed towards truth and wisdom. Um, and that no, not, not everybody's answer was right because he would blister your papers um, about, you know, the sort of stupid, foolish things that you didn't get right, that you didn't ground in the text. Um, and, and, and it, you know, it just transformed my, my whole intellectual world. Um, that, that this was, this was absolutely, as that smart graduate student said to me, an, e an equal method to truth. Um, and my philosophy class just sort of stretched me in, in so many new ways. And, and hist that history well taught, uh, was just a, a completely, new thing to me. So um, yeah, it would just, it, as I'm sure it did with you, it just sort of uh, set my life on a new course. Um, and then going to Rome, right, where it all comes together in so many powerful ways, um, just cemented all of that. Um, and by the end of my Rome semester, I was, um, I was moving out of the sciences and into the humanities. Yeah, so UD did what it's supposed to and uh, made you think kind of critically in, in the all around. <laughs> sure, yeah, and, and well, not only that, right, I mean, again, the, uh, the um, this is, you know, back to our pedagogy questions, you know, um, uh, people in a kind of secular environment uh, put, put critical thinking skills, right, that's the phrase you hear over and over and over again, you know, uh, we, we want students to have critical thinking skills, we want students to have critical thinking skills, well, nobody can ever tell you what that is, um, and the other thing is they never they never say, uh, they sort of use that as a substitute for content, right? And Edie Hirsch has been really good at this, at, at showing how every time there's an educational reform movement, um, they, they posit the previous generation as being these boring people who just want to cram facts into you. And what we want is critical thinking skills. And with each successive reform wave, they've, they've increasingly limited the actual content of the curriculum. So that I've had, I've sat with in meetings with, um, 
you know, educational administrators who say, well, we can't teach any content anymore because 12 years from now, it's all going to be different. And so what we need is critical thinking skills. We need these sort of trans content critical thinking skills. And, and um, I made myself very unpopular with one of them at, at one of these meetings because I said, okay, hold on wait a minute. Let's do something in the next. So let's all be quiet for the next five minutes and let's do critical thinking. Ready? Go. Right. And you realize my point is, you know, and I will say to him, like, you can't do critical thinking about nothing. You can do critical thinking about content. Like that critical thinking comes out of rich content that you then apply to. You can't do critical thinking about nothing. You can do wonderful critical thinking about Churchill's decisions in World War II, but you have to know something about World War II, about Churchill, about the decisions before him, right? That, that you can then do critical thinking about. And the wonderful thing about UD is, right? Um, by giving us rich content, by challenging the students to think about that rich content in, in significant ways, you get both, right? It's not just, we're gonna cram all this information into you in the core, right? It's, and it's not just, we want you to, you know, sort of have a kind of finish where you can go to a cocktail party and say smart things about Paradise Lost. No, we want you to engage deeply with those things so that you can think thoughtfully about things, right? And, and, and we know that as well out in the world, right? Is that um, the people we value the most are the people who, who aren't just sort of clever and flashy. Newman mentions this too in, in the idea of a university. He mentions so there's the kind of guy who's sort of surface flashy and, can, and, and sort of sounds good at a party and can sort of say clever things, but three minutes into it, five minutes into it, he has nothing more to say, right? Um, it's the person who knows a great deal who can sustain thinking and conversing and, and engaging with material. So you, you have to have both. You have to have rich material and you have to have teachers who challenge you to think in significant ways about that rich material. Yeah, that, that's uh, something that I've been thinking a lot about recently about now that I'm finishing my education at UD, how you kind of build this foundation of, of core books, you know, the, the Divine Comedy, Paradise Lost, and all these other texts that we go through, and philosophy and all that, and how to now bring that out into the world, and how to use it like you're talking about. Right. Um, that's something that's really, uh, it's not clear right away. How do you think that, it, or at least for you, you went right into the PhD, so maybe you didn't go right in, into into a role. But when did that become more clear about that, that foundation that you built of knowledge, and then being able to see how UD and that education works for you, kind of? Well, I, yeah. Let me answer the autobiographical question first, and then I want to loop back to uh, I think a really thoughtful way of of understanding the, the interrelation between those. Um, for me, it really um, again since I I kind of um, I want to say I sort of kind of came late to that. I mean, I was taking the core classes along with my science classes. Um, then I changed to English um, kind of during my junior year. I, I first wanted to do what, what's now called the Paideia program. I wanted to sort of invent a, my own major that combined my interest in science and, and my growing interest in humanities. Couldn't make it work at the time. I couldn't quite try to describe. I think now what I was trying to do was a kind of history and philosophy of science. 
idea where I was going to try to talk about the differences between science and the humanities and, and their overlaps, but I, I couldn't even articulate it well enough. So I just moved into English um, as a way of, of engaging with those things. But yeah, I just went out to graduate school, as I said, wanting to sort of do more of this. And I had no idea sort of, um, I just thought, well, I've only done a year and a half of this in any series, right? So I want to kind of keep going at it. But I didn't know what I was doing it for. Horrible reason to go to graduate school. I was just sort of, I don't know, I'll just kind of keep, nah, that's a bad, you, you want, when you go to graduate school, you want to know why you're going to graduate school and what you're doing there. Um, but, um, but it really wasn't until kind of those years, and I started reading First Things, for instance, that, that wonderful journal. Um, uh, Father Newhouse was still alive and very much directing that journal at the time. And, and sort of reading people who were using kind of all the stuff I'd used at UD on contemporary political, religious questions, and they were really sort of thoughtful, um, long articles and things that I was like, oh, that's what they were trying to get at, and this is how this fits together. So in a weird way, my UD education didn't really coalesce for me um, until afterwards, and sort of reading um, contemporary political, religious, um, you know, theological, um, uh, um, sociological kind of commentary on those things that I began to go like, ah, that's what this is all about. And, and I sometimes wonder whether we, you know, the, the core is all these different courses, but we don't really have a kind of capstone core experience or something like that. I've, I've played with that. I've backed away from that, but, but there are ways I'd love to see um, a little more glue to help students make that transition sooner than I did. Um, now, now, there's a really wonderful conception that uh, Donald Cowan um, had about the relationship of the core to the major that I always like to share. Um, this used to be, I think it was in uh, my course catalog. In, in, uh, in the old days, they used to print um, some, uh, something from uh, a professor uh, at one of the convocations, and then uh, the previous year's senior convocation address in the catalog, which I thought was kind of cool. I'd, and again, it was this great introduction to me, like a, a senior saying these really thoughtful, rich things, and then a, a professor who was also kind of, and that's really how I did begin my first sort of introduction into, oh, what this education is all about is, is by reading those things. And in one of those, Don Cowan says that the core um, it, Western civilization is so vast. It's like taking the students out into the middle of the ocean and throwing them in. And, and they're, they're in this vast ocean that's way bigger than they have any idea what to do. And it's, it's so big and deep that they come pretty close to drowning. In it, right? and, and all they can barely do is kind of tread water and barely stay up with water. But, but what they get is this sense of this incredibly vast, huge expanse that is their home. Uh, and then he said the, the the major, which he never liked to call a major, uh, he and Don Luis Cowan always called it a discipline. And they love the pun on the idea that to enter into a discipline, you have to discipline yourself, right? And he said, that's when you crawl out on shore and you decide what's the sort of promontory on which you're going to look upon this vast ocean. And, and he said, everybody has a different one. And you all crawl out on shore and you you kind of get to decide where for now for the rest of your days, you know, you'll now look upon that, that shore. And I, and I always tell the students like for, for, you know, two, almost two and a half years, I thought that was going to be through the lens of biochemistry. And I love that. And I still love 
thinking in those ways and learning about those things. I'm, I'm, I've been sort of, you know, cramming as much uh, virus biology into, into my head as I can in these last few months. Because I, I, I find, I find the, the science of what they're desperately trying to do right now, it's just so fascinating. Um, and I could, I could still see myself have, having taken that path and being fascinated by it. But, but when I finally did climb out onto the shore, I, I now look at the world through narrative, through metaphor, through, uh, you know, through image. So, you know, I say when, when, I, when I watch an ad on television or I hear a political speaker speak, right, I'm thinking like, well, that's a really strange narrative. And is it, is that, that's a very odd metaphor to use in that case, right? And, and, and hmm, it's an odd way to image that situation. Right? And I realized that the truth of what uh, Don Cowan was saying, right? I have come to look upon the ocean and, I've, and I, I had to learn the discipline, right? Of, of disciplining myself so that now this has become my habitual way uh, to look upon the world. Um, and I see things in terms of narrative structures or rhetorical structures or poetic structures. Um, and that, that, you know, now there's a certain limitation. I don't, I don't, I'm not a very good philosopher, for instance. Um, I don't know that I'm a great logical thinker, um, but I think in terms of, uh, of narrative and, and how that works. And I think that's a really powerful image for how uh, th both of those images, right, is that first you have to be thrown into, and you have to even know there is an ocean, right, and be thrown into that vast ocean and experience its vastness and its power. Um, but then you want to climb out onto shore um, and find... But then, but, and, and again, you have to discipline yourself. You, you can't just go to go, I'll be a literature first guy now. No, it takes training. It takes that discipline. It takes that junior poet class or that, uh, that junior philosophy seminar class or, you know, or organic chemistry to begin to train you to think like that kind of a person. Um, and then there's surreal power to that. Gotcha. So we're getting kind of into something I wanted to ask you with that, that lens of looking at things. Um, so in our contemporary world, uh, the, there seems to be kind of a loss uh, to the idea of what a man is supposed to be or masculinity in general. And I know that's something that uh, I've heard you speak about a little bit, in, especially in the books that we've gone through and some of the classes uh, that you teach. So what do you think, looking at the world today and then uh, looking at your knowledge base of literature, how the idea of masculinity has shifted from what it used to be and how people are kind of bending that context or weakening it or however you, however you think it is. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, let me, let me start with a, a message of hope, which is that, um, you know, over the last, I'd say 20 to 25 years, um, and maybe it started even a little bit earlier than that, but I think, uh, I think it's really in the last 20 to 25 years, people have come to realize that there has been a crisis uh, in, in conceptions of, of the masculine, conceptions of men. And uh, I think, you know, through uh, the evangelicals, you know, sort of discovered this and began to think about this. I think Catholic thinkers uh, began to really realize this was a real crisis. Um, and, and begin to, and, and so there now, there's so much more about this than there was, say, when I was a student. Um, and there, there's movements, and there's websites, and there's, um, you know, groups on campuses um, that are really beginning to think about this and, and address this. So, you know, um, 
while well, yes, there's been a loss, um, and it's and it still can be uh, pretty tough out there, um, and and depictions in the media um, have that. But but there has been some turn. There has been some some change. Um, you know, um, kind of the recent Terrence Malick uh, film right, is just um, you know it's just a wonderful example of of a strong, uh, kind man who 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 lives out his masculinity in, in the midst of uh, just saying no to, to the Nazi movement, right? And, and it costs him everything. Um, so we have some more examples out there. I mean, for, for a, a really long time uh, in say the, the, the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, you just couldn't find a positive father figure anywhere. In, in, um, in the media, you know, fathers were these oppressive, nasty, or bumbling, stupid. And I get it. It was a reaction against the the 50s father knows best thing, and and you know the the pendulum was swinging. Uh, but I don't think people realized how damaging it was, you know. And, and so there was a sense of sort of um, uh, taking, you know, the 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 swing that feminism had created, and sort of pointing out like, yeah, all of your images of women are they're kind of these ditzy, uh, dumb women. And sort of saying, well, hey, what's good for the uh, goose is good for the gander. And we need to think about the images of men that are being created. And so there has been a, a much, uh, in the last 20 years, has been um, a lot of positive pushback and a lot of positive thought about that. And, and I see that. And I see that in uh, a lot of different ways. Um, so that's a great thing. Um, boy, your, your, your bigger question is, is you know, a question for... Um, probably a whole book series on, you know, images of masculinity. It would be like a, this, you know, a magnum opus for an entire scholar's career, sort of starting with Greece and the images of masculinity and, and making our way all the way through. Um, but I think, it, I, I, um, so, it, you know, we'd have to kind of figure out where we want to enter into that. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm a medievalist, so really one of the great shifts in the masculine happens really in my period, right? Where we move from, um, we had this, um, this ancient idea uh, of masculinity, right? With, with people like Achilles um, and Odysseus and Aeneas, right? Three very different forms of masculinity, three different forms of, uh, of the heroic male, um, right? And then, um, and then we, we build into that in Western culture Right. And especially I think England is a good place to see this. Right. You build in um, then the, right, the northern, right, the Germanic notion right, of, of the masculine as this warrior culture, which is not that unlike um, the Mediterranean culture. But it does have this other sort of strange thing added into it because of the North myths. Right. That that we fight and we fight for honor and glory. Uh, but in a in a sense, um, uh, in the context of this apocalypse, right, at Ragnarok, that is in some ways going to render it all hopeless, right? Because even the gods lose in Ragnarok. Um, but there's a kind of grandeur, nevertheless, in holding to one's honor um, uh, that, uh, that comes in through that, and, and almost a grandeur that comes in because of that kind of... Um, uh, dark, hopeless end. So, so what you what you grasp onto uh, is is what I said. So, and there's a way in which that's a real power for getting you through um, really sort of dark times. Is to say, I, I'm 
and it, and it gives a sort of grandeur to saying, I will hold to my, to my values, I will hold to myself, uh, uh, that I think that the Norse does really provide for them. Um, but then, then there's this shift, right, with, um, with the advent of, of Fina Moore or courtly love poetry, right, where there's a civilizing effect on that as well, right? And there's an attitude of, of a man is not just somebody, you know, who kicks butt and takes names, uh, but a man is also someone who has a relationship to, to the woman, to female, and who uses all of that sense of honor and glory also in, in the social sphere. Uh, in the domestic sphere. And so, um, you know, a kind of, um, you might say a kind of, you know, Norse male was a guy who kicked butt and took names and who cares about the women. Uh, but now there is a notion that, that honor and honorable behavior and honorable conduct um, is expanded uh, into, right? And that comes from, that comes straight from Christianity. It comes from a dignifying of the woman uh, that comes from the, the dignity that, that uh, men and women are made in God's image, right? That Eve was a crucial part of creation, that Mary bore the son of God. And so brought, you know, it brought the dignity of women to an even higher level. And so, right, uh, you've got, you got Bernard de Clairvaux, uh, you've got courtly love poetry that now create a new sort of cult of the value of women um, and, that, and that encourage men to respond to that value Right and and to the nuptial relationship in a new and and really powerfully elevated way um, and and as you know right uh, one of the things I say um, is that there's ways in which no one acted ever acted like they did in a courtly love poem right it became this kind of bizarre literary ideal um, but then at the end of that lecture I'll also say um, well actually you know artistic models do actually build their way into having effect on real life. And people through the Middle Ages do actually begin to act this way and expect others to act that way. Um, and that there is a powerful cultural uh, effect um, that that has. And so manhood gets, gets expanded, right? Uh, I mean, we begin at UD, we begin the core with women as war prizes, right? And that's the fight. Uh, over Briseis. I mean, uh, if you actually then meditate upon, you know, who, what, how Briseis is really being treated, uh, she's a, right, she's, she's a sexual war prize. Um, what, what Hector at the end of book six is, imagines, is Troy falling, right, and Andromache becoming a slave servant in, in an Achaean's home. Um, and he has to, right, he, he fully envisions that. Um, you know, they, I, um, a marriage in a Roman household was uh, not a, always a great place for a woman to be in, right? It's the, it's the Christian message um, that, not immediately, right? And, and, and cultures have to um, have the effect and, and, uh, over time. But, but, but Christianity opens up you know, for the first time, the possibility um, and, and, the re and the reality, the, the theological reality of seeing woman as, as equal in dignity to man and in Mary, right, the highest dignity that a human has ever achieved. Uh, and that's, that's an amazing cultural shift. As I say, it doesn't happen right away. Uh, we're talking Fina War poetry comes in, what, at the end of the 10th and the 11th century. Um, so it's, it's a millennium in some ways before the culture can kind of 
uh, work its way through the ideas. Um, but in some ways, um, you never go back, uh, one hopes, if you have that understanding then, and, and, and you have um, a rich sense of then the way men are to behave both in their, in their sort of, you know, uh, kick butt take names uh, part, which is a part of who we are and a part of what's wired into us with this powerful chemical called testosterone, uh, but also the way of learning to channel that um, in the social sphere, in the domestic sphere, um, through a recognition of the dignity of women. Gotcha. So I could go a few places with this, but I wanted to ask you for those who don't know the play Taming of the Shrew, um, how uh, at the end there's kind of this long dialogue about what a woman should be, uh, how she should relate to man. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think, uh, how man should relate to woman and how women should relate to man? And maybe just give a little synopsis of that play so people have a better understanding. Oh, well, um, well simple answer to your question is in charity. Uh, it's how we should relate to everyone. Um, do we do it all the time and in the best ways? Uh, of, of course not, because again, there's that, that funny thing called original sin. Um, that's a, you know, that's, boy, you, you go right there to, of course, the play um, that is, you know, the most hated in some ways in the Shakespearean canon. Um, you know, uh, I, I, had, I had a colleague at a different university who said, that's a play that should never, ever be taught. It should be stricken from, from the canon because it's so offensive uh, to her. Um, and um, uh, I, we actually began uh, teaching that on the High School of Shakespeare in Italy program, um, uh, partly because we taught Othello. Uh, you know, we take the students up to Venice, we do Merchant of Venice, and we taught uh, Othello along with it. Um, but Othello was just too dark, um, frankly, too sexual a play for the high schoolers, we thought. Um, and, and, and it just, um, we just want to leave them with that as the last of the three plays uh, when, when we're trying to create an, an enjoyable uh, thing. I mean, it, 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 the, the students loved it. It was profound and, they, and everybody loves hating Iago for, for good reason. Uh, but we sort of shifted. We said, we need a comedy. And we thought, okay, uh, we actually stay in Padua rather than in, in Venice. Here's a place in Padua. And, and Dr. Rand talked me into it. And I was like, I don't know, man. That's, uh, you know, it seems so anti-feminist. It's right. Um, but as you read into that play, uh, it's actually a much richer play uh, than I think most people think. It's, and, and Shakespeare is really at some pains um, to show that it's a richer play. It's a play about education, for instance. It, it begins with a kind of quarrel that was actually real in Padua, at the University of Padua at the time, between um, you know, the, the medieval scholastic philosophers and the new um, right, humanists uh, who follow Ovid, right? And, uh, and it's his servant saying, don't study philosophy, you know, come here and, and study Ovid, study the ways of love. Right. And that's the sort of setup for, for the guy who's going to start chasing Bianca, right? The sweet, pretty girl, right? As opposed to Kate, right? The shrew. Um, but I think if you, it, I think there's other ways, you know, to read. Uh, and of course, you know, we're all supposed to see Petruccio as, as such an awful person for the way he tames uh, the, sh the shrew Kate. Um, I think there's other ways to read that play. Um, if you really look at it, Bianca is every bit as manipulative uh, in her own way as Kate is sort of upfront, um, straight up, I'm not doing what people think. Um, Bianca disobeys her father. 
um, whereas Kate actually obeys her father. Um, and, and so in, you know, typical sort of Shakespearean way, he sort of gives you the chance for the easy reading, but teases you into paying attention to it uh, a little bit more than, than, than you think. Um, and, um, and, and the taming, um, I, if I had, if I had time, I think I, I could work you through this a little bit more. The taming is, is not, I think as harsh again, as it, as it might first seem. Um, there's ways in which uh, Petruccio himself uh, deprives himself of food. He says, well, I'm not going to eat as well. Um, and, you know, and so, the, you know, the sort of typical picture, oh, look at these horrible things. He, he starves this woman uh, into submission. But there's other ways in which um, there's, there's complex ways to read that play. Um, and, and I actually have the craziest reading of all. I think it's actually based on uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, there's lines, and I think it's Act 4, Scene 2, uh, where Kate is sort of at the end of her tether, um, and, and uh, Petruccio has been right, saying, saying no, you, know, you, don't want those, you don't want those clubs. Take those things away from you. You don't want this food. You know? And he's saying, you know, I, no, you don't, you don't want that awful food. Make him, take away that meat. You know? um, and and she, he's, she says a line, I, I'm going to butcher it, um, but she says a line that's pretty close to beggars in my father's house uh, have more than I have. Um, she, she's, I, I, it's not exactly, but it's, it's almost an exact quotation of what the prodigal son says. Um, I, I, I'm still, I don't still have a full reading based on this, but it's so close um, that I, I have this sort of weird way um, as you know me, right, I, um, I, I'm always seeing things in medieval ways. I think there's a kind of medieval morality play at the core of this play, um, where, um, or a medieval play, you know, there were medieval, late medieval plays based on the parables. And I think he's trying to think through that parable. Um, and I think Kate has to realize um, that in a way she has been a prodigal daughter um, and that there were riches in her father's house. Uh, that she was kicking against, um, and that um, and there's there's that um, all she has to do is act in charity, um, and then and in fact, um, you know, she immediately does uh, change, and Patricio immediate immediately says, um, in a sense, sort of throws throws the cloak over her, um, and says, "Oh, great." This is great. So there's a way to read that as to say, oh, see, he's finally, he's won. He has beaten her into submission. There's another way to say that Kate recognizes she actually behaved horribly at the beginning of this play, um, that she really, uh, she really was not uh, acting charitably, that she actually resented and envied Bianca, um, and she does. Um, I, now, I know I'm going way out on a limb here, and I'm about to get shelled. Uh, by everyone who sees this play as as a really horrible play against women, um, but I, I I think that there's something interesting to this play, and so um, um, at the end, if you notice um, the the other the other two husbands, right? They have this bet, right? And the other two husbands uh, say like like you know, oh watch, you know, I could uh, Patricia says, well, I could call Kate in any time. Right and 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 the other husbands who who right supposedly made the good marriages to the good women, 
um, they say, you know, they, in, they, don't, they don't order their wives, they entreat their wives to come in, right? And, and say, hello. And, and those are the wives who are uh, kind of nasty. They're like, I'm not doing what you want. Um, so th those wives don't have a sense of mutuality. Uh, and, 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 and Petruccio says, uh, entreats Kate to come in. Um, and she says, she says, I'm not going to be like those wives, right? And, and there's this, uh, I think Shakespeare is trying to suggest, man, those other two wives, uh, those, are, those other two marriages are not going to be very happy plays because those wives are seeing marriage as a power game. And however this thing has worked out, and, and I would suggest there's ways to read uh, those, those middle acts is to see Kate and Petruccio working things out. Um, they've worked out something that's much more mutual. And I'll be honest, I, I really think, uh, excuse me, um, I thought I had that on silent. Um, I, I think there are ways to say from the very beginning, Petruccio loves Kate's intelligence. Petruccio loves the sort of feisty parts of Kate. Um, from that very first tete-a-tete -tete they have, you see that um, uh, Petruccio is like, whoa, I got, a, I got a feisty, fiery one here. She's going to be fun to be married to, right? Whereas um, the others are like, oh, I'll get married for my money or I'll marry the pretty one. Um, and I think Shakespeare, you know, this is an early play in his career. He develops this throughout his whole career, like marrying for money, marrying for the pretty one, marrying for power and status, always a bad idea, right? But the, the good marriages that develop in Shakespeare are marriages where uh, the wife is every bit as bright and sharp and, and, and thoughtful and, uh, and, can, and can stay with anybody. In fact, in the comedies, most of the time the women are more intelligent than the men and have to educate the men. Uh, so I, I, I know, I know that's, that will get me in trouble with everyone. And uh, I'm not advising men to uh, tame their wives or, or be abusive or, or keep food away from their wives. But I am saying that I think that play has a lot more going on um, than a first reading would suggest. Awesome. So my last question uh, before we wrap up here would be, there's a lot of guys, young guys who are kind of, I think, struggling getting out there and getting into dating, if that's kind of what they're, uh, they see as their, you know, their marriage is their end game. Uh, what advice would you give for them? You know, is it to look for the, the feisty, fiery one or the kind one or like, what would you, what advice would you give to somebody? Oh, I'm the worst person to give advice on something like that. You know, I, um, I think that, I think that there's sort of, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go Aristotelian on you and say that, uh, that virtue is in the mean. I, I think that I would say there's sort of two mistakes uh, that young men are prone to. Um, uh, one is this dating stuff doesn't matter. I'm just out having fun and, and I'll, you know, sort of hang out with, with whatever girl I feel like hanging out for the time and just sort of, yeah, we'll just have fun and I don't care where any of this is going and we'll, we'll you know, uh, eventually, you know, so I'll, I'll do something, right? So, and then the opposite is, I think, a kind of notion that makes it too serious too quick um, that says, you know, I, I mean, I've actually read people in, uh, you know, I, I think well-meaning, deeply religious people who say, you know, from, from, from age 16, you should never date anyone who isn't marriage material. And, and I think, 
That's a little too serious for me. That's putting a little too pressure on a 16-year-old 16, 16 um, to even be able to conceptualize that. So I, the mean, I would say, is somewhere in between, is that part of the dating process is, is self-discovery, is sort of discovering what kinds of people you like and what kinds of people you're compatible with and, and uh, how those things work. And it's okay for that to be fun. It's okay to date a few people. My, my mom, right, who um, was from the greatest generation, she grew up in the Depression, uh, uh, was a teenager in World War II, right? Uh, she grew up at a time when, boy, there were no men around. Um, and she, she would always, uh, even in sort of the 70s and 80s, which you guys must think of as, you know, a long time ago when things were, were better or, or whatever, uh, she hated the fact that, that high school kids you know, coupled up so quickly and like, oh, we are going steady. She said, I once dated three guys in one Saturday afternoon. She said, I had, I had one date for lunch and I went out with another guy for dinner and then I went to a dance with a third guy. She said, you guys take this way too seriously, way too quickly. Um, and so she hated the whole going steady from, you know, 15 or whatever thing. And I think, and I used to fight her with that and say, yeah, but you know, back in your day, that was the only way to, to, to even get to, you know, hang around with guys. You were so, and, and she said, yeah, maybe you're right. Like, you know, she went to an all girls high school and all that sort of thing. So she said, yeah, I didn't have as many chances to be around guys. So I, you had to do it that way. But I've, I've come to think there's a certain wisdom to what she was trying to say, which is that if you take it too seriously, too quick, you put way too much pressure on people to say, oh, I am now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 17 years old. I must, I must never, you know, uh, go out to a movie with a girl unless I see her as, you know, marriage material. Um, so I, I think that puts way too much pressure on the process. There should be a time of dating around, discovering what you like, how you relate to members of the opposite sex. Um, and as I say, it's, it's a process of self-discovery, but a process also of sort of learning about uh, members of the opposite sex and what they're like and how, how girls behave and, and how they respond to you and your personality. Um, you know, um, but I think, you know, then you want to sort of slowly begin to move towards a process where um, you're saying, okay, you know, now I'm in college and now I'm moving towards the end of college. Um, you know, I, I will want to begin to begin to evaluate the people I date on, on a longer term basis. And, you know, um, then again, what are you back to? You're back to, you're back to your Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. Uh, you're back to uh, Aquinas and, and virtue ethics. Like, does this person have the kinds of virtues that are long-lasting, right? And that will, that will produce a kind of long-lasting happiness, right? Is this person temperate? Um, is this person honest? Is this person, uh, you know, have a certain courage? Uh, because we're, you know, we will be facing, you're, you're, we will face difficult times, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, but, but again, sort of ask a 17 year old to have those virtues and be good marriage material uh, is way too much pressure to put on her and way too much pressure to put on you to evaluate that thing. Uh, but I think, you know, as you begin, as you begin to know yourself better, and by the way, uh, you know, it takes honest evaluation of your own strengths and weaknesses um, to say, boy, I, I, I really need someone who is temperate to sort of balance me out because I tend to be more impulsive. Uh, or, you know, uh, I, I think I don't want to be mismatched, right? I need to find someone. Uh, but I, I, think it's, it, I think it does have to do with those, those, uh, those silly fundamental things that we, we keep 
we learn early on in, in Phil and F and classes like that is uh, you begin to want to evaluate someone um, in that way. And, and the hard thing to do, I think, when you're you know, 19, 21 years old is to imagine yourself 45 um, and imagine yourself. And, and, it, it, and we change over time, so that's a hard thing to do. But to say, you know, what is this person going to be like when there's four kids but we deal with difficult financial situations or, or we do deal with a difficult illness uh, in the family or amongst our parents. Um, you know, and, and in that sense, you have to look into also the other person's family and you begin to want to see, um, you have to know what values they were raised with and what they, because that is a part of the shaping question. You do marry another person's family because you, uh, not that you, you know, have to live with them or near them or anything like that, but you marry into that past of that person uh, and the values that they were raised with and the way that they're directed. And those things are a part of, but, but again, that's a part of a, it seems to me, a process that has moved pretty far uh, into that. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, going from the sort of exploratory having fun, enjoying uh, another person, you know, slowly begins to give way to that, that larger and deeper process. Uh, and, and knowing when it's time for that is probably the fascinating question. And knowing to, to begin to start moving in that direction is also a process of self-knowledge and knowing uh, when you're ready. Uh, the last thing I'll say is, of course, nobody's ready. You know, this whole notion that, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not ready for marriage. Nobody's ready for marriage because nobody's ready to have kids. You know, and this whole notion of, well, you know, we have to wait until we have, you know, until we've, we've practiced on two dogs and a cat. We want to make sure we have, you know, a, a nice couch uh, and the house is, is in good shape. Well, if you do that, you're never going to have kids, right? Uh, and, and well, we want to wait until we're, we're mature enough to have kids. I can tell you, especially as a guy, you're never mature enough to have kids. Um, you know, it's, it's children that produce that maturity, right? I mean, I, I remember I was talking to um, a biology professor who has left UD, uh, uh, Jeff Ganter, but was a wonderful guy. Um, and I remember um, he, he, he was a musician and he helped out in like uh, Battle of the Bands, I think, or something like that. And, uh, and, and we both had young kids at the time. And I said, man, I don't know how you stayed out that late. And he said, never again. And we both sort of laughed. We said, you know, it's kids who teach you not to stay out late anymore. It's not that you don't, you don't still want to do it. You're a young guy. You still want to do the kind of young, cool things. But it's like, whether I want to or not, the little guy is going to be up at 530. And my wife has said, you're doing the morning thing because I stayed up with the late feeding, right? And it's so a weird way, right? I'm saying nobody's ready for that. It's kids who teach you that. And, and you, you have to, when you hold that little thing and go, oh, I have to change and be more responsible because this thing is now in the, that's, that's the moment that you grow up. And, and nobody's ready for that. Uh, like I said, if you wait until you're ready, it's never happening. But you have to give yourself over to that. Um, and, uh, and you have to, you have, I suppose you have to have the prior maturity so that when that moment comes, you're ready to submit to that, uh, and grow into that. And it's the most wonderful thing in the world. So you should want to do that. You should want to have that moment. Awesome. Well, that about does it for our time, but thanks so much for being here today. And I hope we can, uh, do this again in the future. That'd be great. Okay. Good luck with the whole podcast. Thank you so much. 
Well, that was Dr. Gregory Roper of the University of Dallas. We covered a lot of subjects, and I hope you got something out of it like I did. Thanks for stopping by, and I hope you come back for the next one.